Amen. I, I don't know that I have any unfun jobs. I mean, I think my, I think my MO in life that if it isn't fun, I'm just not going to do it. Um, so maybe there's some stuff around here that's just not getting done, um, and that's my fault. But uh, I, I like to have fun, and, and I, I do like my job. I love it here. Um, but thank you for your prayer. Um, and uh, I want to tell you guys a story. Uh, so in high school, um, I started doing something that um, was kind of dangerous, but it was, it was fun. Uh, my youth pastor decided to take us to West Virginia, to Appalachian Bible College. Um, we went down there to Appalachian Bible College in, I believe, Beckley, West Virginia. And um, we went to like an adventure camp. Uh, it was pretty cool. We had rock climbing and rappelling. I'm afraid of heights. Like it, you know, caused us to challenge some of our fears. Um, but there was another activity that we did. Um, and we got training for, for everything that we did. Rock climbing, rappelling. Uh, we went caving. Remember that? Where's Julie? Remember caving? Yeah. Julie did not like caving at all. Um, but we, we did all of these fun activities, but there was one activity um, that we had special training for, and that was whitewater rafting. Um, and some of you uh, saw up close and personal this last night here the power of, of water. Um, and the gentleman, it was a college student, when he began to speak, he started off with a phrase, and he said... Whitewater rafting can kill you. And as soon as he said that, I've never seen a group of teenagers pay more attention in their life. They were laser focused on everything that this man had to tell them about whitewater rafting. Um, and it's true. Uh, the New River Gorge is, is one of the probably five best rivers in the country. Um, the, uh, the Gully River, which is, uh, which is right next to uh, the New River there, um, they do dam releases, but it's probably the best river um, east of the Mississippi there, to whitewater raft. Um, and there's different size rapids. Um, you know, there's class one rapids, which uh, Stephen and I like to fish in. Um, you know, there's, there's class two rapids, which I like to fish in. No, I, uh, which I like to fish in. Um, and then there's, it gets to class three, and, and it jumps significantly. Um, from there, to the point where uh, whoever is uh, in charge of the boat in the back uh, you need to be paying attention, and you need to listen to every command that's said, and you need to follow it to the T. Uh, there are many dangers when you're on the river. Um, there's not just the rapids, and it's not just the, the flow of the water. Uh, many times when you're going through rapids, the reason that there are rapids is that there are rocks underneath the rapids that are um, deflecting the water in different directions. So it's very, very dangerous. Uh, the other thing you have to watch out for are undercut rocks. So if you've seen uh, rock faces along the sides of rivers, there's a good chance that underneath, because the flow of the river continues to go, it has eroded away a nice little cave underneath of that. And if you get caught in that flow, most people do not come out of that flow. So we have a group of teenagers listening to this individual who told them that they could possibly die. And then he's talking about the different classes of river or rapids, and then he talks about the class five rapids that we will hit. And we will hit three of them. Um, and I said there's a big jump from class two to class three. Um, the jump between class three to four is large, and then the jump between class uh, four and five is large. It's not quite waterfall-esque, but you do disappear into the water. So you're coming down the river, and all of a sudden your boat goes down into a hole, and then you come back up out. Hopefully you come back up out of the, of the thing. But he had our undivided attention, and when we got on the river, every word that came out of his mouth, we did. Paddle hard, all forward, left side, right side, paddles up. We're, we're doing everything that we can exactly like he said. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I took my kids um, from Ohio down there. I couldn't get my kids to listen and obey like that. I mean, it was amazing. We were like machines. But he had prepared us properly for what we were about to do. Our mission was to get down the river. Our primary mission, though, was just to survive the river. Um, and people fell out of the boat. I fell out of the boat. I went under the boat. Um, I, you know, I, I came back up out of the boat, and he gave me instructions on how to, how to navigate that. 
when we come to scripture here, um, and when we come to Luke chapter 9, what we're going to see is we're going to see how Jesus gave very specific instructions to his disciples. Um, but he did not just give instructions, he prepared them in a very, very specific way. So turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1 here. Luke chapter 9 in verse 1. Um, before we start reading, though, I'll just give you a little bit of a background here. Um, some of you may not be familiar with church or the gospel of, of Luke here, um, but we are going to talk about a man named Jesus Christ who was sent to this earth by God. Um, his birth was foretold for, uh, for centuries before. Um, he was the promised Messiah, and he is now on this earth living here. Jesus Christ, we believe, lived a sinless life on this earth. And God empowered him so that he was able to do miraculous signs and works. Every word that came out of his mouth was 100% true. Nothing caught him by surprise. He knew all things. He searched all things. He created all things. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. He is the king of all of us. And he's here on this earth. And the king has called 12 disciples together. And he's going to begin to send these disciples out to preach. There was one who came before him, a man named John the Baptist, during his lifetime, who was unique. God empowered him in a very unique way. Jesus says of John the Baptist that no one born of woman is like John. He was born with the Holy Spirit, which is strange. There is no one before John like this. Different individual. But Jesus comes on the scene here, and he calls 12 men together. And in verse 1 it says, He called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So we're looking at this, this man, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, the creator of this world. And the creator of this world has been doing miraculous signs. But now we see him doing something different. He calls these 12 men together, and then he takes the power that he has and imparts it on them. Don't let this pass you by. Um, it, is, uh, it is a unique thing to be able to pass something on to someone just to teach them, okay? I was, I was having a conversation this morning with someone, and Dad was on the drums. Uh, I think it was Ron, right? Ron, Ron turned to me, and Ron said, well, he taught you how to play. And I said, ah, no, he didn't. I said, his drum teacher taught me how to play. Um, some of you have suggested or asked me for drum lessons. I'm not a very good drum teacher, it's a very unique thing to be able to teach someone something else. It is something completely different to just speak it and give someone authority to do something else. I can't just turn to Ryan and say, hey, Ryan, you now have the power to play the drums. Yeah, no. Um, I can't do that. It's impossible. But with Christ, it is not impossible. So he gives them all authority over demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out proclaiming the kingdom of God and to heal. What has Jesus given them here? What has he given them that they haven't had before? What did John the Baptist have? Jesus is giving them a small taste of the Holy Spirit here. Not a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but a small taste. And this is important to the greater story that we're going to talk about in a second here. But he gives them a small taste of the Holy Spirit. And he says, proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God? From here, uh, after, after this week, we're going to start the book of Acts here. Um, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel of Luke. He is going to mention many times the kingdom of God. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God? What are they proclaiming? 
The reason we have to ask this is because our job as Christians, as we're going to see in the book of Acts, is to proclaim the gospel. Well, those of us who know the gospel and are reading this story here, we know there's some elements that the apostles don't understand about the gospel yet, right? Jesus is still on this earth. Well, what are they, what are they proclaiming? The kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is that Jesus is here. This is the message that they are proclaiming here. That the power of God has come into this world. That Jesus is now with us on this earth. And he goes around and they go around and they heal. And they find success healing. But Jesus goes on to prepare them even more here. In verse 3 he says, And he said to them, Take nothing with you for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whenever you enter a house, stay there. And from there, depart. How does Jesus prepare them here? He says, don't take anything. Uh, Ike and Luann, you guys, you guys went on a long trip, right? You guys went on a real long trip. Um, how would you have fared if you had taken nothing? Not very well, right? I mean, it's an unusual request. It's a very, very unusual request. Ian, Ian, if you said to me, if you woke up tomorrow and said, hey, uh, Pastor Billy, um, I really feel like God's calling me to, uh, to New York City. Uh, no, not New York City. It always gets used. Uh, Kensington in Philadelphia. God's calling me. If any of you have ever been to Kensington, you don't want to be in Kensington. Um, Kensington in Philadelphia. And I said to Ian, okay, great. Um, what organization are you going to be working with? And Ian says, no, no organization. Okay, where are you going to stay? Eh, I'll find somewhere. Like, what? Are you taking Vienna? Yep. Oh, okay. Vienna's like, no, he's not taking me. Are you taking Vienna? Yeah. Okay, so uh, how much money have you raised? Yeah, I haven't raised anything. Do you have any food that you're taking? No. How about clothing? Like it's going to be fall and then it's going to be winter time there. You got to be, no, I'm not going to take anything. I'm just going to go. All of us conventionally are going to say to Ian, hey, listen, we don't think this is a, a great idea for you. This is not the way to prepare someone for a trip. But we're talking about Jesus Christ here. And Jesus Christ has directly commanded these individuals to go in a very specific way for a very specific reason. What could that reason be? I think at this point we can go back to the, to the book of Ruth that we just came back from. I think there are two individuals in that story that uh, correctly display this attitude. And this attitude is resting in God. What Jesus wants them to do is completely rely on God for everything. Not in their own strength, not out of their own pocketbook, not out of anything that they could muster on their own. He wants to send them out fully relying on him. Think about Ruth. Think about Ruth when she's talking to Noemi. Uh, Noemi, I'm sorry. We have a Noemi at work. Naomi. When she's talking to Naomi, what does she say? She says, listen, uh, Naomi says to her, go, go back. Go back to Moab. Go back to your people. Find a husband. I can't give you anything. There's nothing for me to give. I have no more sons and I can't produce sons. And even if I could produce sons, you're not going to wait around. Go. And Ruth says, no, I'm not going to go. All conventional wisdom would say to us, Ruth, you know what? Head home. She made a, she made a pretty good argument. She made an airtight case for you here. Go home. Ruth says, no, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you put your head, I'll put my head. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. They have absolutely nothing to offer anyone except from the world's perspective, problems. But Ruth says, I'm hitching my wagon to that. 
Boaz, same thing. Boaz has really nothing to gain by accepting Ruth as his wife. His son technically will not be his son. This is a Moabite woman. There's a good chance that he's going to be judged for marrying a Moabite woman. Not necessarily by the individuals who have seen Ruth, because all of them who have seen Ruth and interacted with Ruth say that she is a godly woman, a worthy woman. But to the outsider who looks in and judges before they understand, Boaz is taking on an issue. He's taking on baggage, but he believes this is what God is calling him to do. These original apostles here who are going out two by two, he gives them a buddy to go with, and he says, listen, preach the gospel and heal. I'm giving you all authority over demons and of sickness. Go and do it, but don't take anything with you. No money, no food, no bag, not even extra set of clothes. Go. And it says they went, uh, they went and departed. Uh, verse uh, 5 here, it says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I'm going to go back to this idea of wherever they don't receive you. Um, Christian, I'm speaking to you here. there is a certain level of vulnerability when you share the gospel. Um, You are telling someone in a very real sense that you have an issue. You have a problem. Um, And you're also telling them that you know the solution to the problem. Um, And it can come across as judgmental at times. And some well-meaning Christians, I believe, um, try to share the gospel by force. They want to convert you. They want you to turn to Christ here. When Jesus tells the disciples here, when you enter a town and someone doesn't receive you, shake the dust off as a, as a judgment against them and go on to the next town. Christian, I want to tell you today, your job is to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the good news. The epistles tell us time and time again, we don't do it with eloquent speech. We don't do it as one who is just smart and, and super smart enough that, that everybody understands. We present the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts hearts. God is the one who calls people to himself. Do you know what this does for us? This allows us to realize and rely more on God, that there is more power in the word of God than there is in the word of of Billy Mulligan. And there is in the word of Ben Hibbert or Kristen Hibbert or Betsy Sayer. The power's in the word. The power's in the spirit. The power's not in me. So it says they departed, went through the villages, Jesus wants the disciples to rest and rely on God. So something funny happens here. Um, And again, you're going to have to understand the bigger picture here to to see exactly what happens. But we kind of have a strange story next in in verse 7 here. And we'll start off here. It says, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had, had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this whom I hear such things? About whom I hear such things. And he sought to see him. So again, the picture is Jesus sends them out and then all of a sudden they go out. They're, they're healing people. They're casting out demons. And then we, we shift scenes here to, to Herod. Why? Well, it's because people are talking. It's because Jesus has powerfully uh, prepared the apostles in a way that when people see them, they're reminded of other people. When people see Jesus, they're reminded of other people in the past. Herod, when he starts to hear these reports, 
he's a little confused. He's like, wait a minute. Like John the Baptist was going around. He was doing these things. But guess what? I cut his head off. I beheaded him. He's dead. He's gone. Who is this? This is just a small picture of what the book of Acts is showing us here. The word is spreading. Jesus, by empowering his disciples, has spread the Holy Spirit out just a little bit temporarily here. So much so that the politicians, when they hear it, they're confused by it. They're like, wait a minute, we got rid of that guy. You know that weird guy who was out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, wearing camel's hair? That guy out there, we killed him, he's gone. It's back to business as usual. But it's not back to business as usual. Herod's confused. He's perplexed. When the, when the human authorities come into, uh, come into contact, when finite human authorities come into contact with divine, unlimited authority, they get a little scared. They realize that they're not the biggest show on the block anymore. And it's confusing to them. Not only do we see this, um, do we see this all throughout scripture, we saw it in Daniel, um, but we start to see it here to a point. That the fame of Jesus is spreading. That Jesus, for some reason, looks like this other guy that we already killed. And now there's 12 guys going around that all look like this guy. Why, why is this happening? This isn't the way it works. We kill it and it ends. But it doesn't. See, John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist's message was to prepare the way for Jesus. But his message was still the same. What was the thrust of John's message? One word that begins with an R. Repent. He told people to turn from their sins. He said, repent, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was saying, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is coming to this earth and you better get right. Because he's here right now. It's interesting that they go to John, they go to Elijah, and they go to, uh, to Moses here. If you read further in chapter 9, we're not going to get there today, um, but this isn't the last time that two prophets and John the Baptist are mentioned um, in, in different categories here. Um, we actually have in chapter 9, we have the Mount of Transfiguration, um, where Jesus appears in his glory, and there's two individuals walking around with him who are Elijah and a prophet of old, Moses. I think what Luke is trying to do here, he's trying to challenge the framework that people are, are dealing with. He's, he's looking at individuals who are, who are seeing something uh, from the outside. They are looking and they're making snap judgment calls and it's confusing to them. It's absolutely confusing to them. They don't understand it. They can't figure it out. Everyone is trying to wrap their minds around what is going on. God has intervened. God has, um, God has inter intervened here in a very real way, as we talked about uh, last week uh, with Stephen Page. God has come down to this earth, and everything is changing. And the people who are on the outside, they're not real comfortable with it. We come to verse 10 here. It says, On his return, the apostles told him all they had done, uh, and he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned of it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who, who had need of healing. So Jesus calls his disciples together. They come back, the 12 apostles. They're talking about all the great things that they've done, all the miraculous things that they've seen. Uh, they are reporting these things. And Jesus says, hey, this is great. Let's huddle up. He says, let's, let's go to a quiet place. And you guys, you guys just tell me. We'll be together. We'll do all of these things. It'll be great. Well, what happens so many times is that uh, people follow the disciples to Jesus. The crowd finds Jesus. And what does Jesus do? It says, when the crowds learned they followed him, he welcomed them 
and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus models exactly what he just asked the apostles to do. See guys, our Savior had a bigger plan. We'll talk about it in a second. But he didn't just leave us. He didn't just say, hey listen, figure it out on your own. Stephen Page called me this week um, and we had an issue with a, with a community group and um, I started thinking to myself, okay, how are we going to solve this issue? And Stephen Page already had, the, already had the answer for me. There was a part of me that just wanted to be like, figure it out on your own. And guess what? He figured it out on his own. That's not the way Jesus works. Jesus shows people. He models people. See, Jesus gave them a, miss, a mission. He gave them the message. He said, preach the kingdom of God. But then he models it for them. He says, preach like this. Let me show you. Let me show you the power that we have. The crowd follows him here. Verse 12. Now on that day, now as the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, uh, for we are here in a desolate place. Does this seem odd to anyone? What did they just spend at least a few days or weeks doing? Going out, no food, no money, no shelter, no nothing. Who took care of them? God did. Well, now there's a large crowd. I mean, God, there was, that was only 12 of us. Like, it was only 12 of us, God. Like, you did, you did a good job, but maybe you can't handle more than 12. Is that what the disciples are thinking here? No, they're thinking logically. They're like, listen, there's a lot of people here. We don't have food. We're in a desolate place. It's getting dark. People need to go home. Send the crowd away to a desolate place. Or send the crowd away to home. The surrounding villages were in a desolate place. Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Figure it out. No, he doesn't say figure it out. But in a sense, he says, you give them something to eat. Jesus is testing them here. Jesus knows everything that we just said. Jesus knows that he's taken care of these 12's needs for the past several days, several weeks. And he knows that he's given them power and authority. And he says, you feed them. Um, Continuing on, they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes unless we are to go to buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. I mean, there's a lot of people there. They're like, listen, we got five loaves of bread, two fish. There's no way we can feed 5,000 people. Jesus, if you want us to go buy something, I guess we could go buy something, but that's going to be a pretty penny, feeding 5,000 people. That's going to be tough. And he said to his disciples, have them sit in groups of about 50. And they did so. And he had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave it to his disciples and set it before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And there was leftover, uh, and there was leftover, and leftover was picked up, um, 12 baskets of broken pieces. You know, the best teachers, they do. They, they test their students. The best teachers in this world do test their students. They want to see, they want to get a baseline for where they're at. That's what testing is. We want to know what you know. We want to make sure that uh, what we're teaching is, is actually accurate and it's, it's changing your thinking. It's changing the way that you do things. The best teachers have to constantly test their students. But there's another thing that the best teachers do. The best teachers don't just write their students off when they get the wrong answer. See Jesus here? He doesn't just write his students off. Nobody raised their hand and nobody said, hey, like, Jesus, you can feed them. No, their answer was send them home or we have to buy something. Jesus just smiles. He says, hey, bring what you have. Jesus prays over it and provides a plentiful provision 
for all of the people. He provides for their needs right then and there. Now guys, we're going to meddle for a second here. But I think that if all of us are honest, most of the time, we're trying to provide for our own needs. Right? I mean, we're real concerned with our jobs. We're real concerned with the income. We're real concerned with the budget. We're real concerned with the, the safety of our family members. We're real concerned with these things. And, and listen, it's important to be concerned about them. But when those things don't necessarily go according to plan, instead of the sky is falling, oh, everything's wrong. Oh, send the crowd home. Uh, Jesus, we're going to have to buy things to, to figure out the need here. I think our encouragement, again, is to rest in Christ. You know, a good phrase for us to repeat might be, God, I, I really don't know what's going on right now, but I know you're in control. And I know that you have a reason for allowing this to happen right now. This is a small problem for Jesus. All problems are small for Jesus. But in the grand scheme of things, somebody going without food or staying somewhere, not being able to stay somewhere for one night, probably not the, the end of the world. You know, the disciples are going to face much bigger problems. You and I, we're going to face much bigger problems. We're going to deal with financial difficulties. We're going to deal with the loss of jobs. We're going to deal with the loss of of loved ones. One day you feel like you've got it all figured out and the next day everything has changed. There's one thing that doesn't change and that's Jesus Christ. What he's asking his disciples to do here is rest and rely on him. See, Jesus provides everything that we need to accomplish our mission. Jesus provided everything that these individuals needed to accomplish their mission. First, he gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, listen, I'm giving you a temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Go out and do amazing things in front of people. Go out and do things for people that they need, okay? Like somebody's sick, go out and heal them. They're demon-possessed, go out and heal them. Everybody could use that, who's sick or demon-possessed. I'm giving you something useful. But preach the kingdom of God. Let them know where the power is coming from. The power is coming from the fact that the king is here. And we are his servants. So what do we know about Jesus so far? What do we know about him? Well, we know that he has the power to, to heal he has the power to cast out demons. We know that he has the authority to give that power to other individuals. We know that he, he looks like John the Baptist. There's something about him. If we're an outsider and we're looking, we're like, man, this guy is different. He's strange. There's something unusual about him. We learn that he leads by example. He models it for us. He's given us a mission, a message but he's also modeling that message for us. And we learn that he can multiply food. He provides for the needs of his people. He provides for the needs of the people, too. So let's see who his disciples say that he is. Verse 18. Now it happened uh, that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets of old has risen. This is the, this is the phrase that keeps getting repeated over and over again. And Jesus, obviously knowing all things, knows that this is where they're going to go to first, because he asks them, what do the crowds say? But then Jesus makes a distinction between the crowds and the apostles here in verse 20. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Other gospels tell us more in the story. Luke, for his purposes, just gives us this. And what do we see here? That Jesus' closest 
those who are closest around him recognize that there's something different. And it's not the fact that he's weird. It's not the fact that he does things differently. It's not the fact that he's unconventional in the uh, preparation method that he gives people by saying, don't take anything, just go. It's not just all of those things. It's the fact of where we started. Peter confesses here, and he says, you are the promised one. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are the one that is going to provide salvation to the world. All of these things that you're doing right now, while you're here on this earth, they're great. But there's a greater need. Stephen talked about it last week, Stephen Page. The greater need is that there is sin still in the world. And that sin has multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And now we're here, in this place, in this story here. And what Peter is saying is all of the multiplication, all of the genealogies in Genesis, all of the prophets of old, everything that has been promised, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in you, Jesus. Now I want you to understand the weight of his statement because if Peter is wrong, he's dead. According to the law. Saying this out loud, believing it in your heart, according to the Jewish law and customs, would bring death to him. But Peter boldly proclaims it. And we're going to see the purpose for which Jesus came. Verse 21, and he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised again. You know, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. He's going to be raised again, but he's going to die. You see... Jesus tells them that there is a purposeful parting. That he is leaving this earth. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why Jesus? Like why? Why are you leaving? Come on, we got a good thing going here. Uh, sickness is being healed. Demons are being cast out. We are spreading the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, the, the, the politicians are starting to get scared of you. Like there's... A chance, Jesus, we could start the kingdom right now. And Jesus says, yeah, just not how you think. I'm leaving. Uh, when Pastor Don went through the gospel of Luke here, um, he made a point to talk about Luke 19.10 and saying it is the entire point of the book and it's Jesus mission in a nutshell. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19 verse 10. In Luke chapter 19 just before this uh, Jesus is talking to um, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Great name. Zacchaeus. It's a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He's talking to a wee little man and this man has not dealt well with others. He's kind of robbed them and cheated them out of their money and he meets Jesus, and he says, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can, Jesus, to make it right. I'm going to sell everything I have. I'm going I'm to repay people more than, than I've taken here. And Jesus looks at this outcast, this one that everybody hates, this one that no one likes. And he gives a blessing, and he rejoices. And after he rejoices, he says these words, for the Son of Man has, came to, has come to seek and save the lost. Guys, this is Jesus' mission. This is the reason he came to this earth. All of the other things that he does are great. But they're a byproduct of his mission. His mission is to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus looks at Zacchaeus. He seeks him out. He says, hey, come on down. And Zacchaeus is forever changed. Zacchaeus repents 
because of the gospel of the kingdom of God, because he has met the king, because the king has called him out. Each one of us that know Christ, he called us out. He fulfilled his mission. He sought us. We didn't seek him. He found us. He created us. He bought us back. He paid for us with his life. Jesus is saying, this is the program, guys. This is how it works. I'm preparing you right now for when I'm not here anymore. The entire beginning of chapter nine, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, hey, listen, you guys, I'm gonna step back here. You're gonna go out, but I'm gonna give you power. I am going to sustain you through difficult times. I want you to rely on me. I will provide your needs. And guess what? I'm gonna show you how to do it. I'm going to model it for you. I'm going to give you a tremendous power when I'm gone. But I'm also going to show you with my life. This is Jesus' mission. But not only is he going to show them with their life, with his life, how to live. Luke chapter 9 verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus tells them flat out, I'm not just going to show you by the way that I live. I'm going to show you by the way that I die. This is the most difficult thing for, for Christians to do. Is to constantly deny ourselves. Pastor Stephen came to me before the service here. Uh, me, John, and, and my dad. And he was talking about uh, helping some people out. You know, uh, people who have had damage uh, and, and things like that. And do you know what my flesh thought? What's today? Sunday, right? There's somebody I'm missing right now. I'm missing seeing a whole row of Buffalo Bills jerseys right here, right? I'm thinking, one o'clock, you want to get together at 1, 1.30? Like, come on, man, it's opening day. Like, we're, this is the first day of football. My flesh, that's what I want to do. Like, man, I just preached. Like, I don't want to go clean somebody's basement out. What do I do? Deny myself, take up my cross, follow Jesus. You know, some of you guys, I'm just going to pick on myself for a second because I, I am a big offender of this. And, and maybe you are too, but I just, I look at myself and I, I realize how much time I waste. How much time is Billy time? How much time is on the phone playing uh, Rocket League Sideswipe? Because I'm a platinum level four, and I love it. Um, how much time is wasted? You know, some of you have said to me, um, Billy, I just, I feel bad that, uh, you know, that you guys didn't get to go on your vacation this year. I feel bad about that. You know, Paul talks about his vacations and his missionary journeys, right? Guys, listen, our world talks about this idea of self-care, that we need to take time for ourselves and things like that. Right here, this is Christian self-care. Daily, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You want to talk about a priority in your life? You know what? Guess what, guys? Rocket League shouldn't be a priority in my life. Facebook shouldn't be a priority. The Clark Summit Facebook page, or the, that definitely shouldn't be a priority in my life. But I make it a priority. When I wake up in the morning, this morning, I was like, oh, I want to see, I want to see, I want to see, I want to see what's going on. See if we can get to church. See that. Daily, guys. Self-care as Christians. How do we take up our cross and follow Jesus? What does it look like to lose our life? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. 
Paul does an excellent job here. Romans chapter 8, obviously he does an excellent job. It's in the Bible. Um, Paul uh, says in Romans chapter 8, down in verse 12 here, how do we do this? How can we possibly accomplish this? Verse 12 of Romans 8, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Just exactly what Jesus said. If you seek to save your own life, you're dead. If you live for yourself, you're dead. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, <clears throat> if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice what he says here. This is not Billy Mulligan being strong enough and saying, you know what? No, I'm not watching football today. DVR's going on overdrive. I'm getting out there and I'm going to get wet. I'm going to get dirty. I'm going to rip stuff out of people's houses and I'm going to do it with a smile on my face. No, he says, if you live by the Spirit. See, Jesus gives us a mission, he gives us a message, but he also gives us the means by which to accomplish the mission. He gives us the means by which to preach the message. And that means is what changes lives and changes hearts. He says, live by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Verse 14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We do this boldly, guys. The Spirit is stronger than anything. We're going to learn in the book of Acts here. The Spirit is so strong. Some silly person, I almost used another word, some silly person tries to buy it. It's powerful. It's valuable. It has the power to change lives. If you're led by spirit, you are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friend, if you're here today and your spirit is not testifying with the spirit of God, you are living for yourself. Every day, you are living to save your own life. Jesus tells us first in Luke, if you seek to save your life, you're dead. Paul reiterates here in Romans, if you seek to save your own life, you're dead. Guys, as Americans, man, it's easy to, it's easy to focus on ourselves. There's so much in our lives that are just focused on us. Self-care for the Christian is daily taking up your cross and following Christ. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, Paul expounds and says, listen, if you're a child of God, you're an heir to the king, a co-heir with the king. The blessings that that are through Christ, because of Christ, can be received by us. And the greatest blessing that we have is the salvation of our souls. The accomplishment of the mission of Christ that he came to seek and saved, which was lost. And I'm telling you today, if you don't know him, you are lost. And by hearing his word today, you're being sought. And it's not my job to convince you. It's the words that are in the Bible. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here today that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's a lot of uh, conjecture over what this last verse means. Um, A lot of people think that since he's going to talk about the Mount of Transfiguration or he's going to reveal the story of the Mount of Transfiguration next, it's that. I don't know. 
Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is always right. He's proven it to his disciples here. He's proven that not only are they to do what he says, but he will do what he says. We know from history that Jesus did. That he had that parting with his disciples. And what we're going to find out as we enter this study of Acts here is that we have a group of people that have not been left alone. They have been given the means to accomplish the mission, which is the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see is the movement of that Holy Spirit throughout the earth. Guys, I want you to know, Luke chapter 9, Jesus is showing them the plan moving forward. And in the book of Acts, as we study together, we're going to see that plan unfold. Friend, Jesus cares about you. He knows that what he's asking of you is tough. It's hard. Some people we say, oh, just, just accept Christ. It's easy. It's not easy. Daily denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Remember, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's telling them that he knows all things. Jesus knows that's the means by which he's going to die. He's showing his disciples that nothing is out of his control. Even when things seemingly go sideways. Even when their plan isn't God's plan. He's in control. Our big idea again, all that is needed to accomplish the mission is found in Christ. Guys, we have the best teacher ever. And we have four different gospels that show us how he did it. And then we have a book after that and epistles after that and the book of Revelation that show us how the Holy Spirit moved through this world to eventually get to Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, to us today. And then the great news, he's coming back. The great news for those who know Christ. The terrible news for those who don't. Guys, I have a few of these books. Um, I've got about 30 of them. Um, this is a Bible journal, or a Bible journal, scripture scripture journal. Um, basically, it's uh, scripture on one side; it's a blank page on the other. This is the entire book of Acts. We have thirty of them. If we need more, we will purchase more. But my encouragement to you guys, as we enter this study of Acts, and we see how God used His Spirit to do miraculous things throughout the known world and beyond, I'd encourage you to read ahead each week. Take notes. Take your own notes. Come here, grab the, the handouts that we give out. Take your notes on that. But get in and study. Be prepared coming here each week. Guys, listen. The word of God is Jesus manifest in the flesh. The word of God is Christ. And it has power. 